This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, HBR's Ku'uvehira Ishii joins us to talk about how these challenging times are forcing those in remote areas to reassess their preparedness. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I got the lovely chance to talk to folks um, uh, over in Ka'u uh, on the southernmost point of the big island to talk about how much they're preparing for it. I, I'm sure people have heard, but over the weekend, uh, there was a confirmed case of coronavirus in the district. Now we should say the details are a little light on this recent case from the Department of Health, but uh, we do know, here's what we know, is that in this uh, certain part of Ka'u, South Point, Discovery Harbor, this is sort of uh, the zip code 96772, uh, the Department of Health had sent out their maps right now that are color-coded saying there is, you know, there could be as little as one, but maybe five cases in this area. And so when I reached out to the Department of Health over on the Big Island, uh, Eric Honda was able to confirm with us that, yes, there there was a confirmed case. They don't uh, have the de- they couldn't release the details on whether it was a visitor or a, a visitor who had stayed in the area or a resident. And so we are still trying to find out more about this case. But it's something that uh, the Ka'u Hospital and the folks in Ka'u have been preparing for for months now, um, waiting for that possible case to come to their community. As we know, um, Ka'u is very about an hour away from Kona or Hilo, at least an hour long drive. And so getting supplies there and medical care is very limited in that community. And, and that's something that uh, Jesse Marks, the executive director of Ka'u Rural Health Community Association, has really been focusing on uh, since she's been, I want to say, 20 years working on rural health in her community of Ka'u. She talks a little bit, she knows the place so well, she talks a little bit about some of the challenges uh, for that area. See, Ka'u is a 921 square miles and all different kinds of terrain. So that, you know, you have Pahala, Nalehu, Discovery Harbor and Ocean View, just to see a few of the different communities. There's approximately 8,948 population. So when you're talking about that, you're talking about the remoteness. There are some places in Ocean View that doesn't have, you know, running water, much less, you know, uh, capabilities of Internet connection and such. And that area just has one hospital, right? <laughs> You've got one hospital. Uh, as um, Marilyn Harris, the administrator of that hospital, Ka'u Hospital, has said she's got one hospital serving pretty much the size of uh, the island of Oahu. Wow. Right? So 921 square miles. It's funny when uh, you talk to Auntie Jessie, as she is known, Jessie Marks, uh, she'll spit out these numbers because, you know, 8,900 population, because she's been talking about it for so long. So she knows these things uh, by heart. But 9,000 populate, nearly 9,000 uh, people in this area, the size of uh, uh, the size of the island of Oahu, is something that's really been uh, a challenge for the hospital, who, uh, which really doesn't have uh, much. The Has- Ka'u Hospital's facility has about 21 beds. But most of them, 17 currently, are being used for long-term care patients. So when they heard about coronavirus, that was sort of the first move that they made was to isolate all their long-term care patients, stop any uh, visitation from family, which was kind of a sad thing for some of the uh, population out there, some of the community. Um, And then they're also screening everyone at the door. You know, anybody comes into the hospital for fever or uh, coronavirus symptoms. And then they're also uh, making sure that any patients who come into the ER, uh, the emergency room, um, that needs or requires acute care is far away from long-term care patients. And that's really uh, the worry right now for uh, Marilyn Harris, the, the administrator of the hospital. And I, I think, too, when I think of a rural hospital, I think of, like, here on Oahu, Kahuku Hospital mm-hmm. or Wahiwa General, which has that long-term component as well. Exactly. We have, a, I believe, 16 rural hospitals across the state, all kind of facing these same challenges. And when you look at how prepared they are in terms of uh, personal protective equipment, for example, or or ventilators, the, ventila- the number of ventilators that they have at Kahuku Hospital right now, one, right? And so when that's become such a, I guess, gold uh, for, you know, responding to a possible outbreak, uh, it's hard to think that that, that's actually the case in these hospitals. 
Yeah, I heard that maybe Lanai may only have one as well. Exactly. They, they aren't meant, uh, these hospitals are not prepared for, uh, you know, massive care. And so uh, Marilyn Harris, the hospital's administrator, says they have plans to ramp up operations should an outbreak hit Ka'u, but, but it's not quite uh, what, we, what you'd think. If God, you know, if God forbid that we, we actually did have a COVID case um, in the facility, depending on the situation at Hilo, then we would transfer them Hilo. If it turned out that it was that Hilo, you know, if there was a tremendous surge and for some reason Hilo is unable to, to take more patients, we are prepared to take care of those, those patients here. Oh. Uh, we've planned for a surge if we had to, that we actually could set up additional beds uh, if, if that should happen. Um, of course, we're praying that that doesn't, but, but we are prepared. So the plan is to transport any COVID patient, 19 patients, to Gila Medical Center, which is, like I said earlier, an hour-long drive. The plan B is to keep them in Ka'u, which has frustrated some, including Marks, who we, who we heard from earlier. But this whole, uh, this whole process of preparing for a pandemic has really kind of exacerbated some of the vulnerabilities of the remoteness of this community. Here's Harris. You know, we have a very small medical staff, so we don't have a lot of backup, you know, should one of them get sick. And then uh, the only kind of positive in all that is that with respect to the impact of our location uh, on getting access to needed supplies, we've had to deal with a number of natural disasters over the years, you know, from <laughs> from the volcano to the earthquakes to brush fires. And so in some ways that's a bit of an advantage because we kind of know how to prepare so that we we have what we need. Uh, In fact, a donation of N95 masks came to the hospital from community members who actually received them uh, during that 2018 Kilauea eruption. Oh, wow. That's so generous of them to... It is, and it's very ka'u, and I think what's going to happen next is you're going to see a lot more of support from community members to stay at home, follow the stay-at-home orders, and to keep that social distancing in place. Right, and uh, Harris has background dealing with SARS, right? Right. Yes, she did uh, before this. She, you can kind of hear it in her uh, voice, but she is uh, was formerly at the Department of Health in Ontario during the SARS outbreak. And she said massive testing was key, but she hasn't seen that in Ka'u, and she hopes that's something that can happen. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kuve. Mahalo. That was HPR's Kuve Hiraishi telling us how the Big Island community of Ka'u is preparing for a coronavirus outbreak. <laughs> It is now time to take a look at the rest of the world. Two European countries prepare to take the next step with coronavirus vaccine trials, and they've been trained to sniff out cancer in people. And now the UK is training dogs to do the same for COVID-19. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 22nd of April. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The World Bank warns that the pandemic is leading to a huge fall in the amount of money sent home by migrant workers. Quranic schools across northern Nigeria are being shut, and Germany is the latest country to announce human vaccine trials. As people around the world lose their jobs because of the pandemic, money sent by migrant workers to their families back home could fall by as much as 20% this year. That's the warning from the World Bank today. 800 million people around the globe rely on remittances from relatives working abroad. Somalia will be particularly badly hit by the loss of funds, as Mary Harper explains. About $1.5 billion a year are remitted to Somalia, significantly more than foreign aid. Many families depend on them for their survival, with one in every $4 coming from remittances. Many children can only go to school because of money sent from abroad. It enables others to seek medical help or simply to buy food. Staying in Africa and governors of 19 states in northern Nigeria have closed down all Quranic schools to try to slow the spread of the virus. An estimated 9 million children at the schools will be sent home. Ishak Khalid is in Abuja. Some Muslim parents send their children, some as young as six years old, to other towns and villages to learn the Quran. Millions of children are engaged in this practice, but they mostly live and study in crowded shelters, often not properly catered for. 
They are left in unhygienic conditions, roaming the streets and begging for food during their lessons free hours. The northern Nigerian governors say these children are particularly at risk of contracting the coronavirus. Hopes of a return to normality depend in large part on finding a safe, effective vaccine against COVID-19. In the UK, trials on humans will begin on Thursday. Now, Germany has announced it will begin similar tests at the end of the month, involving around 200 volunteers. Germany's health minister is Jens Spahn. It is a good signal that the development of a vaccine in Germany is at a stage where we can start with the first studies. At the same time, it's important to point out that it will take months. This is an injection in the body, so safety first is the guideline for such a vaccine trial. Healthcare workers in the Netherlands are to receive a cash bonus to recognise their efforts in fighting the virus. The Dutch Parliament first discussed the idea of a financial ward a month ago. The details from Anna Holligan. While it's nice to see people recognising the efforts of doctors and nurses fighting to save lives, Wopke Hoekstra said the universal gratitude must be expressed in a more tangible way, not just in the form of applause. Politicians are now working out how much it will be and when the bonus will be paid to those on the front line. Vietnam is easing lockdown measures after reporting no deaths from COVID-19 since its first case was recorded in January. In Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh, shops and businesses in areas considered low risk will be allowed to reopen. To mark Earth Day, the UN has urged world leaders to show the same determination seen in battling COVID-19 in the fight against climate change. The head of the World Meteorological Organization, Pateri Talas, said the pandemic had significantly driven down greenhouse gas emissions. This uh, crisis has had an impact on the emissions of greenhouse gases. We estimate that there's going to be a 6% drop of the carbon emissions uh, this year because of lack of uh, emissions from uh, transportation and uh, from industry and energy production. But he said governments needed to take sustained action to stop climate change in the long term. The Italian city of Milan is already taking matters into its own hands, as Mark Duff explains. The city council in Milan has launched a very ambitious scheme, which they're calling Strade Aperte, which means open streets. Under this, they're going to convert 32 kilometres of streets to make them much more bike and pedestrian friendly. They're introducing a 30 kilometre an hour speed limit and they're going to do all of this over the summer. A charity in the UK is training dogs to detect coronavirus in passengers arriving at airports once the lockdown has been lifted. The animals have previously been used to find cancer and malaria in patients. Dr Claire Guest is from the charity Medical Detection Dogs. When we're out of lockdown, uh, or at least back to some normality, flights coming in from other parts of the world where people are coming in and may be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, you know, those few days when you've got the virus and don't know it. You walk through and as you do, a dog is sniffing each person in turn. It takes 0.5 of a second. The dog quickly uh, identifies which people need a test and need to go straight into isolation to prevent further spread. And that's your coronavirus global update. for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn how local community members are helping to make personal protective equipment find out how the maker community is firing up their 3D printers and coming together to meet the demand to supply our health providers and first responders with PPE. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. What to do about the homeless? That question now asked with more urgency in some cities during this global health crisis. Joining us for the long view is our political analyst, Neil Milner. Good morning, Neil. Hi. So, you know, all the headlines that we've been reading and hearing about have to do with the homeless and putting them up in hotel rooms. Yes, that's one of the uh, more courageous and complicated ways of dealing with uh, the homeless. The, the homeless 
have not really had high rates nationally of, of testing positive, but the potential is certainly there. And because it's such a vulnerable population, um, health vulnerabilities and so on, uh, it poses a real problem, not just to the homeless, but of course because this is a contagious disease to everybody else. So there's been various ways of trying to, to deal with this. And the one that's, as I say, the most courageous but complex is essentially to put them into hotel rooms and to feed them three meals a day and keep them under isolation and, and to protect them. Another way that's been tried, and then San Francisco has moved in that direction. Another way is to take over a large building. My daughter worked in the in a, uh, what the, the Portland Coliseum when it was converted to uh, social distance spaces so that you would get the homeless away. And a third one, which is uh, essentially just keep them where they are, keep them hygienic, and if you're going to move them, move them out in the country somewhere. That's, that's another response. And it turns out the latter response seems much closer to what Trump officials are talking about or implying, and we'll get back to that, and what the big city mayors are talking about. Well, I'm sure the president isn't real keen on having homeless in Mar-a-Lago or any of his Trump properties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, that's a whole uh, other issue. You, If you get relocated, it would not be out in the country, it would not be to Mar-a-Lago. Some of the Christian groups, and this has been very much criticized, want to take the homeless shelter people that they have and put them in what gets called Christian camps uh, somewhere out there. But remember now that, that uh, Mayor Caldwell last night, as part of his plan to do more testing at community health centers, uh, has uh, made arrangements with uh, small Waikiki hotel chains to put people in there if they test positive in isolation. And we've been using hotels for quarantine. There's a logic to it, right? I mean, you've got all of this space now um, that can be kind of protected, um, and you need people. You are going to have people who need that kind of space. It's just that it's it's expensive. It's complicated. Even San Francisco, which of course is um, a relatively liberal city, there is a big argument. The mayor, uh, there is more uh, hotel room stuff now, but the mayor of the city is much more skeptical about making a large scale move in that direction. Uh, than the Board of Supervisors, which is like the City Council. It looks like they're going to do adopt a lot more hotel rooms there. Uh, so that it's moving in that direction. But you see, as soon as you do that, you have issues about um, possible security. You have issues. I mean, people are certainly better off if they're off the streets. But you have issues with certain mentally ill people, and it's just a... a most uh, homeless people are not certifiably mentally ill, but there's a percentage that is that um, may not do very well in isolation. You're right, and, and I know there are cases where you have people that have addiction problems as well, well and then it, you've got to manage that because you don't want someone going into withdrawals in a room by themselves or, uh, yeah, know, or, or drug dealers walking or, around. Yeah, the room to buy drugs. There, there's all of these, you know, all of these kinds of issues that are complicated, but essentially... It's it's uh, dealing with the homeless in a in a fair and just way. The the real problem the, that's going to be uh, the real dynamic here is what I call uh, kind of federalism on the ground. And it comes down to this: there is no national policy on homeless, just as there is no national policy on how to handle the virus. The, the uh, uh, president has turned a lot of that over to the governors and the mayors. At the same time, there is a national interagency uh, task force on the homeless that is headed by now by a, a new guy who is a real hardliner about the homeless and has profound differences with a lot of homeless advocates. He doesn't believe in hotel rooms. He thinks that uh, it's a hardline approach that you have to take to the homeless, that panhandling leads to vice. And he's suggested in letters. Now, remember I say suggested here because this gets all confusing. He suggested in communications to other homeless groups that they should follow these federal informal guidelines. Okay, so you got these informal guidelines out there. At the same time, you have governors and mayors who have to decide what they're going to do, and no one exactly is going to tell them 
what to do. They make their own decisions. This is what federalism is all about. It sounds kind of formal, but you've got all these kind of things going. So you have essentially a national director who is going to be more than willing to push his ideas, confronting a lot of Democratic governors and mayors about what to do. His idea is he doesn't believe in housing first. He believes people have to be clean and sober and off drugs before they get housing, which means he's not going to like hotels because you can, you know, just get into a hotel. That's the way it works, regardless of whether you're addicted or not. Um, and, and he really thinks that if you clean these places up, if you isolate people in a big area and spread it out a bit, it'll work well. The problem is that a number of places that have done this, it has been so scandalously awful Las Vegas tried it. As soon as they got publicity of what it looked like, they tossed it out. Even San Francisco tried it, and it got bad publicity. It just looked bad with Spartan. That's where the rubber is going to meet the road on, on this, that like everything else, this is going to be part of the political process and polarization that's involved here. And at the same time, there's very profound differences about uh, the roles of cities, the uh, people of color, how deserving you have to be to get aid. These are historical issues in American politics, and they're getting played out in dealing with the homeless policy. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, you've got the bit of that home rule issue, and even just looking at it here in Hawaii, you've got the governor, you know, uh, 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 you know putting down one policy, but then each mayor, you know, knowing their own county, uh, will make other decisions. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, this is how... That's, uh, home rule is a little bit different than federalism because the legalities of cities versus states are, are different. But it's kind of the same principle that people near the, you know, people on the ground uh, want to make decisions along their own lines. But at the same time, this is a national pandemic, and you have a president who has really deferred and avoided a lot of the things that national government should do in order to do their part in this. So home rule just sounds too much like a Fourth of July speech. What you have is a lot of confusion uh, combined with a lot of discretion and this kind of nasty politics going on uh, that's coloring this that's coloring this very much. All right. So, yeah. Well, well, thanks so much, Neil. Really interesting issue. We'll be, have to watch to see how it plays out across the country. That was our contributing political analyst, Neil Milner, talking about. Uh, uh, issues with the homeless on the Longview. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Fleming and Associates Architecture and Planning, located in Hilo. Since 2009, working to provide design solutions that contribute to the quality of island communities. Proud to support HPR. This is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of Hawaii Public Radio, expressing my appreciation to everyone in our family of supporters, almost 15,000 strong, for making the station's work possible. Your loyalty and generosity helps us bring you the news and information programs that you rely on and the music that you love, especially at times like these when you need it the most. Your support benefits the entire community. So on behalf of all of us, mahalo. State epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Park is in charge of our state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So do you think she's doing a good job? That is the subject of today's reality check. Chad Blair is Honolulu Civil Beats, uh, one of their editors. He joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Well, you know, we've watched Sarah Park in action for many years. Um, Lay it out for us. Well, you know, she's, uh, you're absolutely right. She's been in that position, the state epidemiologist at the Department of Health, um, for, gosh, over a decade now. And uh, she's had to deal with things like rat lungworm and leptospirosis and measles, mumps. Uh, her background is extensive. Her education is superb. MIT, Boston University. And she cut her teeth on infectious diseases at the CDC, right? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But until this crisis, the COVID-19 outbreak, um, she hasn't really come under heavy scrutiny, not 
not at the level she is now encountering from other medical professionals in particular, but also in the political arena. And it really boils down to this. Are we testing enough people? Why are we only testing people who have symptoms of COVID-19? Why aren't we testing asymptomatic people or people with um, mild symptoms? And uh, just to answer that real quickly, Sarah Park is, is following the CDC. That is the requirement. You only test uh, people that actually show the symptoms. Uh, so uh, that has got her in a lot of hot water uh, with some. Uh, I should also say she has her supporters as well. Right. And uh, there have been people, though, who have been calling for her to step down as well as Bruce Anderson, uh, the state health director, just Correct. because they have this varying point of view. Right. And uh, I think you're saying without saying Tulsi Gabbard, our congresswoman, one of our Congress members in Congress in the House, did, in fact, call for that Anderson and Park to resign uh, in pointedly because of their, their lack of responsibility or appropriate response to covid. The governor, I should say, defended both of them, said he had confidence in both Anderson and Park. Uh, but the criticism that's also being heard out there actually comes from people like Dr. Scott. Muscovich, who's a very high profile, and he is he actually uses the word medieval to describe Dr. Park's view on testing. He, he believes, and as you know, he's he's been doing all sorts of testing on his own with his own company. Uh, he believes that she, Sarah Park, is really alone out there in terms of uh, the view about testing. And uh, Dr. Moscovich is among others, like Dr. Josh Green, our lieutenant governor, who also feels that we should be testing more. And, and you know, you heard just yesterday the mayor, Kirk Caldwell, moving to get uh, much more testing going uh, here on Oahu. And your reporter, Brittany Light, I know she also reached out to uh, Dr. David Ralph, who's with the Kukua Kalihi Valley group. Yeah, and he, he too, w- was critical. I mean, some of this is... Some of this is personality. Dr. Park, the people describe her as being very competent, uh, uh, unflappable is a word that they use, uh, devoted to her work. Uh, others have said, you know, she can come off a little bit as condescending. And, and Duroff, Dr. Duroff, basically said, you know, sometimes it sounds like all the rest of you are amateurs, right? And I, I, I Dr. Park, am the epidemiologist and so forth. Um, I can tell you that uh, Brittany, our reporter, did ask Dr. Park about the criticism. And uh, Dr. Park stood her ground, said she sticks with the CDC guidelines. Um, She didn't respond to the criticism. She did allow. She would like to somehow expand testing a bit. She was somewhat vague on that, but she did say you have to have enough uh, PPE, right, personal protective equipment. We don't want to overuse that uh, or deplete the supply. you got to have enough testing kits. That's been another concern. And frankly, the biggest difficulty is the guidelines on testing, particularly for the Food and Drug Administration. They are strict. And so uh, she's kind of caught uh, in a difficult situation in which she's trying to adhere to these guidelines that are coming from the CDC. This is the federal government. Uh, And yet at the same time, there's a lot of people, eh, understandably, very scared about what's going to happen with the virus. Right. But I I can see that if you don't have enough personal protective gear and test kits, you know, it's kind of like triage. You've got to say, all right, then we've got to just be real smart about You've what we're doing. You've got to make a decision. Yeah. And and by the way, uh, social distancing is the thing that she has been stressing along with Bruce Anderson. And so far, looking at the case numbers, we haven't had any on Oahu the last two days. We've managed to keep our death count at just 12, as tragic as that is. Uh, we're wondering if we're flattening the curve. And if that's the case, one could argue that's validation of Dr. Park's uh, strategy. Right. But... Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, a a tough tough position to be in. You're going to get criticism, I think, no matter what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask Governor Ige about that one, yes. right? So. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, for more COVID coverage and news, head to civilbeat.org. It will be a strange way to mark 50 years, but on this anniversary of Earth Day, Mother Earth gets a break from our footprints as across the globe, 
People are isolated and places are off limits. Blue Planet Foundation's Hank Rogers is hunkered down on his off-the-grid ranch on the Big Island. He wears several hats as head of a green energy company and head of a nonprofit with high goals for protecting our environment. Rogers talked with us about resilience and innovation as we hit this milestone of honoring the planet that we live on. Rogers knows one of the co-founders of Earth Day, Dennis Hayes, and he shares his thoughts about the future with us. He came to my first Blue Planet Foundation conference and spoke. He's a brilliant guy. I think Earth Day is like a great thing that happened. I'm part of another organization called Earth X, and that's going on. That's Earth Day celebration in Dallas, Texas, and they're doing that virtually. So we've been doing videos. Last year, we had 120,000 people show up in Dallas. This year, it's going to be virtual. So it's very interesting to see how we do large numbers of people virtually. We are learning how to live life with a lower carbon footprint. Now, I'm not saying it should be as low as we are experiencing today because of COVID, but I don't think we should go back to flying and driving and doing things the way we used to. I think we have a new way of living, which is somewhere in between, which is going to fix climate change. Well, it is interesting when you see the stories about how much pollution has dropped in cities like Beijing and and in India. Mumbai, yes. It's very much an eye-opener. Well, you know, China is moving ahead already by switching everybody to electric vehicles. All of the mopeds are now electric, cars are becoming electric, and buses and trucks are becoming electric. They're all becoming electric, and it's because of pollution. That is the future, and they're, again, one step ahead of us because they're doing it on a large scale, and we're just getting started. So how are you looking at this momentous occasion, the 50 years, and then looking forward the next 50 years. I'd like to spend the next 25 years solving climate change. I've set a target for myself and for my foundation of 100% renewable by 2045. I believe that we can fix everything by 2045. Well, we're experiencing this strange time together as a planet. And as you said, as we pulled back our footprint, it's really opening our eyes to see, you know, what's possible in the future. Exactly. I mean, if you look at my the last few months before this happened, I was flying around the world every two months, visiting people, conferences, all these different things. And now in the last two months, uh, it's been zero. And now I'm uh, doing all of the things I used to do virtually by Zooming or FaceTiming with people. And I, I find out that I have more contact with different people because I've eliminated travel time. I was just talking to Carl Kim over at the Pacific Disaster Preparedness Center. As we're in this crisis, you know, what happens if we get a natural disaster? Uh, my company, Blue Planet Energy, which is a local company we do battery storage and we started this whole thing by taking my ranch off grid and then taking my home in Honolulu off grid and then we started helping other people off grid and now we have 25 people and we have 150 dealers across the country that are installing our batteries our biggest project to date has been working with the Red Cross in Puerto Rico some areas of Puerto Rico still don't have power and this is because it takes forever to put these wires back on sticks Electricity is basically transported by wires on sticks, which all fall down during a hurricane. So what happens when that happens here? What happened there was the places where people are supposed to go, the emergency shelters, which were schools, all failed because they had no power. No power means you don't have a kitchen. No power means you don't have light at night. No power means you have no communication. And so those are the three things that you need in a disaster. So the Red Cross went to Puerto Rico afterwards and said, we're going to retrofit all the schools in Puerto Rico with batteries and solar panels so that they will work in the case of an emergency. And in fact, that's what we did. We retrofit 114 schools to have batteries and solar panels. The panels are provided by the local solar company, so we don't do that business. All we do as a Hawaii company is provide them with the battery, the battery system. And this is what needs to happen here. Why should we wait till we've had a disaster? More people died after the disaster than during the disaster in Puerto Rico because they lost their medicine. You know, insulin doesn't last if you don't have refrigeration. If you don't have clean water, then there's all kinds of problems with that. And then communication. If you don't have a way to charge your phone, you can't call for help or emergency work workers can't coordinate with each other if there's no electricity. So this is something that needed to be solved and it is now solved. And recently there was an earthquake in Puerto Rico and the, the uh, emergency shelters work. They had food, they had refrigeration, they had a place for people to stay and they had a place for disaster relief people to coordinate things and report back to uh, headquarters what's going on so they could coordinate disaster relief. 
relief efforts. So during this time when we're thinking about public health and safety and as we move into hurricane season, then we just need to really keep this kind of technology in the forefront as we honor Earth Day and and figure out how we cope with climate change going forward. If we're going to build anything, we should build things with resilience in mind. We should think what happens if there is an earthquake? What happens if there is a power interruption? What happens? And we need to build infrastructure in a way that basically solves that. That was Blue Planet Foundation's Hank Rogers talking to us about resiliency in this global crisis. His company just yesterday rolled out a new project using a battery battery system called Blue Ion LX. It was designed for large residences and industrial projects, boosting battery capacity from 16 kilowatt hour storage to 64 kilowatts. And as we mark Earth Day, we also talked with a Hawaii filmmaker about a series of documentaries that will begin airing on television tonight. Anthony Alto is a producer with Green Island Films. He sits on the board of the Sierra Club. He talked about the debut of a three-part series called Climate for Change. The first film, which is being broadcast tonight on KHNL, is entitled The New Normal. What we were telling people is that now is the time for us to change our lifestyles, to change the faces of our economy, and the moment is right. And we thought that when we first started working on the series more than two years ago, and I feel it even more starkly now as a result of the pandemic we're in the midst of. What we're living through now is exactly the kind of thing that the scientists have been warning would would be the consequences of climate change. If you look at the research paper that was put out by Professor Camillo Mora from UH Manoa in 2018, they look at the impacts of climate change by the year 2100 if we just continue with business as normal. And they found that in some places around the world, we could be dealing with six simultaneous climate change disasters. So imagine us, the situation that we're in right now in Hawaii under this pandemic lockdown. We're in April. In April 2018, the state was hit by the biggest rain bomb ever recorded in the United States, the most rain ever to fall in a 24-hour period anywhere in the United States. And those things, those rain bombs are becoming more and more frequent. Imagine, here we are in April, imagine we have one of those right now over Manoa or Palolo. It would flood the entire Alawai Basin and Waikiki. We would have to rescue thousands of people. How do we do that with masks and practicing social distancing? You know, pandemics are exactly the sort of things that the scientists have been warning about. We've had hundreds of new infectious diseases appear in the last few decades. So even though you can't point COVID-19 and specifically say that's the result of climate change, you can look at it and say, oh, my God, this is a warning. This shows us what the future looks like. This is a dress rehearsal for a horror show of simultaneous catastrophes that we will be suffering from unless this time we actually pay attention to the scientists. You know, there are two objectives with this film series. The first is to convince people here in Hawaii that this is a problem that impacts us now, today. Climate change is not a crisis for the future. It's not just a crisis for our kids or our grandkids. It's happening to us today. So the film will actually start by profiling a family on the north shore of Kauai who had to cope with the, the flood in 2018, but whose lives have been transformed since then because the weather has changed, the climate has changed. That family has lived in that location for 14 generations. They used to be the Konohiki for the Wainika River and the Hanalei River. So they know these rivers better than anybody. And, you know, they said, you know, we used to know we, it would rain for three days and we'd say, yeah, it might, might flood tomorrow. Now it rains for three hours and it's flooding already. And they just do not recognize this reality and they are living with climate change. There is no question about it. So that's, if you like, on the, the, the warning side, getting people to pay attention to a problem that's real and it's happening now. But the majority of the series is actually intended to try to inspire people, to give them hope, to get them to become engaged by showing them that we still have time to fix this problem. And and that's the, the silver lining in this pandemic, right? It has shown all kinds of remarkable things that, that are uplifting. I mean, it is, well, for, obviously for a start off, it's shown us our common humanity. But beyond that, it's shown the capacity for sacrifice. I mean, in essence, half the world is shut down and sheltering in place in order to protect a small number of us. But we all realize that we're all part of this community and we have to do it. So we're making that sacrifice. And we're also seeing as a result of this pandemic, the capacity that we have to take bold action in the face of a a true emergency. It's remarkable how many people have just given up their livelihoods, given up their way of life because of this crisis. Perhaps they didn't do it willingly, but 
but they have done it without, with remarkably little protest. Across the world, people have joined in this sort of communal effort to fight this pandemic. And so that, all of that gives me hope that we do have the capacity to turn around and fix the climate problem, especially because the level of sacrifice that we're talking about is nowhere near the kind of sacrifice that we're, we're, we're all enduring at the moment because of this pandemic. If we start planning now and create a rational, deliberate plan to, to cover the next two decades, we can march very easily into a future where we build a kind of a Green New Deal, where we distribute prosperity more equitably, but more, most importantly, we will be able to transform our society into something more sustainable. I, I realize now that when you ask about the film, I, I focus first on, 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 what, you know, on showing what people, what people what the problem is. I didn't go on to the inspirational bit, which, as I said earlier, is the main thrust of the, of the series, is to get people inspired. Camilla Mora is a, a scientist who now has international renown. His research papers have been picked up all across the world. The one I just mentioned earlier was picked up by the New York Times and, and uh, Le Monde and the BBC. So he has decided that he single-handedly is going to try to strong-arm the state of Hawaii into planting a million trees a year for the next 40 years. And if we were to do that, we would largely mitigate our entire carbon footprint. So it would be an extraordinary example uh, to, to the rest of the world. And at the same time, we know that there is room on the planet to plant over a trillion trees without touching any land that is currently urbanized or any land that's currently farmed. And if we were to plant that many trees, we would actually be mitigating a significant fraction of all the greenhouse gases emitted since the start of the Industrial Revolution. So planting trees is a, an extremely strong tool. And so Camilla Mora is doing great work in showing people the power of that tool. Obviously, on its own, it's not enough. All it does is it buys us some time. It buys us the time to shift our economy, to, to spend the next 10 years doing everything we, we have to do to shift our economy from a fossil fuel-based economy to an economy built on renewable fuels. To my mind, the only way we can redeem ourselves, we can give some meaning to the tens of thousands of people who are losing their lives through this pandemic, is if we learn the lessons from this catastrophe. And the lesson from this catastrophe is that we are unprepared and we are not doing enough to prepare for the, the, the sorts of disasters that climate change are going to throw our way. But we now have a new sense of communal spirit, if you like. Let's use that. Let's leverage that to take the actions that we need to take. That was Anthony Alto, producer of The New Normal, a show that airs at 8 p.m. on KHNL tonight. Uh, it's a first of a three-part series. For links to the pro programming schedule, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. They say that 15 minutes of classical music a day is all it takes for keiki to reap benefits from this rich art form. How do you do that? Simple. Tune to HBR2, your home for classical music, while they're doing homework, getting ready for bed, or in the car with you. It's easy, and it'll help lay the foundation for a lifetime of music appreciation. Listen to HPR2 wherever you are. Tune in on your radio, stream on our mobile app, or listen on your smart speaker. During the coronavirus crisis, officials have ordered us to stay at home, except for essential business and services. That means many of you have probably been binging movies and shows on streaming platforms like Netflix or Hulu. Well, if you need something more and maybe a bit more intellectual, check out Canopy with a K. The Hawaii State uh, Public Library has started a trial of this service, which provides what it calls thoughtful entertainment. Stacey Aldrich is the Hawaii State Librarian. She spoke with The Conversation's Jason Ubai about the new streaming service. Canopy is a online streaming video service that's offered for libraries. Um, I think there's also, there must be other subscriptions and individual, but they focus on providing access to thoughtful entertainment for the public. So it's a mixture of documentaries, award-winning movies, great courses, so there's learning opportunities, all, all kinds of thoughtful entertainment. And so they came to us, and we were actually about to call them, during this time because we thought, you know, libraries are about stories and it's really hard right now because people can't come to the library and check out videos 
or DVDs and they can't pick up books and we know a lot of people are streaming so now's the time for us to try and thanks to Canopy they're giving us access unlimited access for up until uh, April 30th to have all of our patrons try out Canopy and see if it's a service that we'd like to continue in the future. So this was something that was looked at once this crisis became serious and we were uh, staying at home? We had we'd been thinking about it, but we had been looking at all of our digital resources and thinking, where do we want to put most of our efforts? But when this crisis came along and we're all required to be home more often, we thought this is actually the perfect time to test a new service like this with the public and to also get feedback on whether or not it's something that the community would like us to continue. I know you said it's a thoughtful content. Can you talk a bit more about that? How is it different than Netflix or Amazon Prime that other folks might be using? So Canopy, 60% of the content that they have is unique to Canopy. No other streaming services have access to it. So we're offering titles that people normally wouldn't have access to, but they focus on independent cinema, world cinema, cinema, classic cinema, award winners, thoughtful TV series, in particular for children, it's all commercial-free learning series for kids. So anywhere from our author to Sesame Street to books being read to kids, the animated books. So again, focused on exciting the curious mind <laughs> and nurturing the curious mind. So it's a nice mix for adults. And I think there's some really interesting things for teens too. There's some horror and thriller and sci-fi. Uh, but it's a nice mix for people who just want to learn or or watch some good classic cinema. I had someone send me an email that they had just watched a classic movie and they were so excited to see it because it's not something they've had access to on any other service, I believe, but they found it on, on Canopy. So, again, it's content that is, is different from what you might normally find. Um, you can also take courses, the great courses, which is usually a subscription, and our libraries are all about offering learning opportunities to people. So here's another way that you can take courses online. And there's all kinds of courses. There's business courses, leadership training. We have local content too, which I'm really excited about because we have a local director, Marlene Booth, and she directed Pigeon, a movie about the Hawaiian tradition of pigeon speaking a language. It's beautiful. And it's so nice to have access to those movies too. We've had a lot of great feedback. People are very excited um, we've heard from a variety of folks who have just sent us emails to let us know how much they appreciate it. Some people are taking classes. Some people are excited to be able to watch the classics. So, so far, we're getting a lot of very positive feedback. As far as the library, I think most people, it's a gathering place for folks. A lot of different things that you can provide for people. But since your branches are closed right now, how else can people meet up and you know use some of your services? So there are a lot of different resources that we have available to folks online right now, and we're gearing up some more. So hopefully I can give you a preview of some of the things we're hoping to do soon. So we, of course, uh, now have Canopy for movies and learning. But online, you can also download books through Overdrive, and we've been adding a ton of titles as fast as we can. And we've been trying to look at the things that are most popular and make sure we have enough copies so people don't have to wait as long to get access to those books that they really want to read. Overdrive, we're going to be adding, they've just formatted a whole bunch of classics. So if there's a classic that you haven't read in a while, you'll be able to, and that's unlimited, that you won't have to wait in line for the classics. Harry Potter's also, right now, you can, you can read unlimited access if you want to read the first book from the Harry Potter series that's available. So lots of e-books. We also have magazines from around the world. So people who are, and that's Press Reader, is the tool you can use off of our website. It has magazines, six, over 6,000 magazines and journals from around the world. So you can read newspapers from around the world to see what they're talking about, how they're looking at the, the crisis, the virus. It even, uh, when you're using your PC, it'll even translate. So if you wanted to read Le Monde, it'll translate it into English. And then if you're a craft person and you're looking for new crafts to do while you're at home, there are lots of craft magazines from around the world that you can also look at. And um, we also have courses that people can take. So beyond just the video courses that you can take with Canopy, we have Gale courses, which range all kinds of classes you can take. So if now you're starting to think maybe you want to be a blogger and uh, you want to do a podcast, there's a course that you can take on beginning a blog or a podcast. 
you can take computer classes. You can work on your Excel spreadsheet skills. Um, there's uh, photography classes that you can take online, and that's all free with just your library card. And then um, we also have languages, so you, you can start to learn a new language while you're at home, and maybe the family can start learning a language together, including pirate, so mango languages. Um, there's 72 languages, including pirate, which I never realized how robust the pirate language was. <laughs> more than that. R, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's way more than R. That's available, too. So we have a lot of digital resources. And what we're working on now are doing some video uh, story times, I know there are a lot of kids who probably miss their children's librarians, so we're working on gearing up some children's story times with our uh, library staff who will be hopefully streaming soon some story times for the public so they'll be able to interact. There's a lot. Just because the libraries are closed, you can still keep on learning. Absolutely. And we also, if you need to talk with someone, if you're worried about your library fines and fees or the books you haven't been able to turn in, or you can't get in, you're having problems trying Canopy, or you're having a problem with your device, or you want to learn how to use OverDrive and download the app, we do have people available to talk with Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And we have this amazing staff who's there to help people. And it's a simple call of um, 808-586-3500. We miss everybody at the libraries. We're thinking about everybody, and we're working hard behind the scenes to continue to provide the best possible services that we can and um, we're looking forward to gearing up our services and they might look a little different as we come back in the beginning but we want to make sure that our libraries are going to continue to be those places where where people can be and can learn and grow and talk story. Oh, Stacey Aldrich, Hawaii State Librarian. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you and uh, thank you for all that you're doing to help keep us informed during these times. I really appreciate it. That was Stacey Aldrich, head librarian for the Hawaii State Public Library System. She was talking about the, uh, the library's online resources, including a new on-demand video streaming service called Canopy, with a K. The library is currently in a trial period through the end of the month. And if you're a Hawaii resident and don't have a card, you can apply for a free temporary library card. Find out more info at libraryshawaii.org or on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, hey, are you used to covering up your face yet? Not all masks are created equal, and don't you just hate it when your glasses fog up? We rebroadcast a call-in show with Dr. Kathy Kozak, host of The Body Show. Leave your your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And hey, email works too. Find all our archive shows online on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.